Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. Last year, KUOW teamed up with Seattle Asian Art Museum, Prati Dwani, South Asia America Digital Archive, and Tasvir to launch the Story Wallows series. These events provide a stage for storytelling on a theme. This time around, the stories concerned first days. What is it like to arrive in the United States for the first time? This gathering of reflections will surprise and perhaps inspire you. Storywalla's first day took place on December 4th at the Seattle Asian Art Museum. Thanks to Sonia Harris for our recording. My name is Agastya Kohli, and it is my uh, joy and privilege to welcome all of you. And thank you, Sam and Sarah, for hosting us here for the second time uh, uh, in a row for Storywalla's. But this, of course, is our third event. Um, so very quickly, Storywalla's. How many of you have uh, been to one of the previous events? Excellent. Welcome back. And how many of you uh, are here for the first time? That's a bigger crowd. Thank you. Uh, and how many of you are unsure? Don't raise your hand. <laughs> Good. Uh, don't raise your hand. Um, well, welcome. Considering we have so many uh, people joining us for the first time, let me give you a very quick rundown of what Storywalas is. Um, it is uh, the idea here is to pick a theme every evening. Uh, not every evening, but every time we meet. And, um, and tell stories of, uh, of related to that theme. And um, our experience so far has been the first time we met, we, we shared stories of being misunderstood. Um, the second time we met, we shared stories of coming home. And today we're going to share stories of first day, whatever that means. Um, and I have a feeling that this room is just bursting at the seams with stories about first day because, you know, whatever it was 18 months or so ago, when, when we decided to do a show about misunderstood, I was like, I don't know, maybe I could think of a story, maybe I have one. And then coming home, I was like, yeah, I have a story or two of going back to India or coming back here. And this time someone said, first day, I'm like, oh, I have three stories. So, <laughs> so I have three stories, and I'll tell you throughout the evening at some point or the other, I'm going to sneak one of those in. Um, but I have a feeling that there are a lot of people here um, just like me who have a lot to share. So I will not waste a whole lot of time, and we'll get started quickly. We have 90 minutes, no intermission. We're going to get as many of these stories in as possible. Here's how it's going to work, though. Um, there's a hat with names in it. The hat is outside, but I have the names. Um, <laughs> and the way it's going to work is I'm going to pick one of these, these names, and I'm going to call it. And if it's your name, uh, you should make your way up here. And you have about five minutes to tell your story. And at four minutes, Caroline will give you a ding like this. There you go. Um, and at five minutes, she'll give you maybe a double ding and a dirty look. Uh, <laughs> and, and then you'll, you'll wrap your story up. Um, and then I'll come back and call the next person up on stage. And we'll get as many of these stories in as possible. Um, so that's the plan. Um, first day. I'll start. So... My first day is really more of a first weekend because getting on the plane in Delhi and getting through the first day of orientation at college uh, is all sort of first day to me. Um, and just it happens sometimes in India. Those of you who are familiar with this stuff will, will relate to this, that we happen to know somebody who worked for Delta Airlines at the Delhi airport in the ground staff. <laughs> Lucky for me because I got bumped up to business class. Um, and so first breakfast in business class on Delta Airlines flying from Delhi to Cincinnati to change over to eventually get to Chicago. Um, and, uh, you know, they gave me a menu to order breakfast off of because this was business class. 
and I ordered, I didn't recognize anything on that menu. Um, and, and I ordered something that I was like, I know what these things are. It was roasted chicken and omelet. I was like, that's a weird combination of chicken and omelet, but I know what roasted chicken is, and I know what omelet is. This is safe. I will order it. So I ordered that. But then the tray of breakfast that showed up didn't have any chicken in it and didn't have an omelet on it. But, you know, I was 18. I wasn't going to make a fuss. I wasn't going to complain. I was scared. I was in business class. Um, <laughs> so I ate it. I ate everything that was on that plate. It was a roll of bread and butter and fruit salad and yogurt. I ate all of it. And they took that away and they said, well, that was the appetizers. Here's your quarter of a roasted chicken and a big gigantic omelet. And I wasn't going to waste food. And so on the first day, the American tradition of overeating began. <laughs> and look, now I'm a proud owner of a double chin, keeping it going. Uh, all right, Archana Verma, you're up. She's got a story about dropping my child off for first day in a public school. Here comes Archana. Well, how does a teacher punish you? When you arrive late, they call your name to be the first to be spoken. <laughs> Hello, everybody. My name is Archana Verma. Uh, I left India 26 years ago. Um, in Seattle, I arrived 19 years ago. I'm still forever 21 in my head, but that's a different story. Um, so in 2000, September of 2000, uh, I took my firstborn to the neighborhood public school. Um, for some brief context, I grew up in India, and I was sent to um, a Catholic school um, because my mom told my dad, who was a doctor, that uh, the public schools were not very good, and if he was worth... Um, any degree he had, he needs to earn enough money that her three kids could go to private school. So um, I had zero knowledge about public education anywhere in the world. Forget about the U.S. Anyhow, I had a four-month-old strapped in a baby beyond, and we walked my older one to school. Um, and uh, I saw there, there were about four uh, clusters of people well, mostly women, standing with their kids. Uh, one uh, group was obviously very Caucasian. The other group looked like Japanese. And there was a third group, which looked like slightly mixed, but still mostly Asian. And then um, I was like, is there any Indian out here? Like, no. So I got very scared. And I thought, oh, my God, what am I doing here? Um, my kid will never belong here. Um, let's run away. Uh, I literally thought that. Um, and right then, my looks like my daughter must have thought the same thing because as I'm thinking, let's run away, she gripped my hand in a death grip. Um, so anyhow, luckily the bell rang and the teacher came out of the... She opened the kindergarten door and she was a really nice and sweet lady and, um, you know, and... She was, you know, she hugged my daughter and she took her in and I walked back. By the time I walked back, by the time I reached home, I was in, I was in tears. I called my husband and I was like, we are moving back to India. 
He's like, why? He's like, well, oh, I don't know anybody here. This is very scary. So my husband said, okay, well, first of all, let me come home so that we can discuss how we can go back. Uh, and second of all, um, give me at least a month to find a job in India. Um, so I was like, okay. So he came, he came back home, and he showed me a Bollywood movie, which always fixes me, fix, <laughs> fixes all my ills. He knows me well. So I calmed down. I was like, okay, fine. Uh, you have till the end of September to find a job. Um, and I kept going to school, obviously, to drop my daughter and bring her back. But before the end of September comes curriculum night. And on curriculum night, I, lo and behold, in, I guess, a fit of insanity, I looked, there was a sheet which said, sign up to be a room parent. And I put my name there. And then two other women put their name there. And um, they came up to me, and they said, hello, looks like we'll be room parents. And to my extreme embarrassment, I started crying. I was like, I have no idea what this means. I don't know why this, I wrote this. I think I'm drunk or something. They were like, it's okay, it's okay. Um, that was 2000 September, and now we are in 2016. And three days ago, I had dinner with those three women. For those 16 years, I have been having birthday dinners with them. Uh, our kids are now, my oldest is going to graduate from college. Um, it's been an amazing journey. They taught me public school. They taught me how to volunteer. Um, you know, today, 16 years later, I'm actually a trustee for a school foundation. How bizarre is that for somebody who wanted to run away? Um, and being a woman, I feel I, this is my personal take on it, is I feel that as a woman, I now think the best analogy for immigration is a marriage for a woman. When you get married, you have your maiden name, you belong to your family, but you're madly in love with the person you got married, and you take the name, and then a few years later, you still belong to the family you were there, but you are fully who your family is, your new family. You fully own the new name you have, the new last name you have, and if somebody told you which one is your family, they're both your family, and that's how I feel now in America. So I just want to take a moment to thank all of you for being here instead of watching the Seahawks game. Um, my plan was to keep giving you score updates, but I have no service down here. So, uh, But I'm glad that all of you took the time to dress up in your traditional Indian garments, and I pulled out my special silk kurta. Well, it's a radio show. Just work with me. Just go along. <laughs> no one needs to know. Um, I, I did shave, though, even though it's a radio show. And, but I was like, I'm not bothering with contact lenses. Glasses are good enough, so. Here we are. Anyway, um, Amish Dave, uh, he's got a story about um, first day uh, as Gujarati relatives uh, come to the, the U.S., if, if I'm reading this correct. Um, here's Amish. Hi, everyone. Um, I wanted to tell the first, uh, tell the story about the first day that uh, my ba and dada came to Chicago. So um, growing up in the United States, you um, very quickly realize that um, if you have Indian parents and if you're an Indian American kid, that your parents might, you know, especially if they had an arranged relationship and a marriage, that they might not always um, have um, the most love for each other. They might, they might like each other. They might tolerate each other. Um, but there's often a lot of anger underneath. 
Um, and a lot of that anger comes out, especially when you realize the in-laws are coming to town. And um, I think my mom was particularly aggrieved for several months when she realized that my dad, um, without telling her, had uh, decided that his parents were going to move to our home in suburban Chicago um, for an undetermined period of time, possibly for several months, possibly for longer. Maybe they just wanted to relocate to the United States. And so I remember that very cold December day when we packed up into the car into our Camry and decided to go to O'Hare and wait for my ba and dada to my grandmother and my grandfather to arrive at the arrivals area of O'Hare. And while we were waiting there, it seemed like several hours. Um, we were standing there um, watching all of the other people come out of the Air India flight and waiting and waiting and waiting and just wondering what happened. Um, after actually what seemed like probably actually about two hours or so, um, we saw a security guard who kind of came out, kind of waved at us, um, and we kind of saw my ba um, in the corner uh, wearing her very Gujarati sari. Um, and the security guard mentioned that they'd been held up. Uh, I guess my ba had decided to place some tulsi, which is a type of um, plant in their, um, in their luggage, hopefully to grow it in the United States. Um, to my mom's incredible annoyance because she grows dulce all across our house and all across our garden. Um, and so essentially after uh, explaining to the security officer the confusion, they were able to get out of the airport and we decided to go home. My mom cooked, of course, a very traditional Gujarati meal, a lot of um, rice and lentils, um, okra, trying to make it the, the best meal possible, which um, was not really all that um, to my uh, ba, my grandmother's liking. And so, <laughs> in fact, nothing was really to her liking. It was quite, um, quite, uh, quite a frustrating experience. And so my dad wanted to try, to try to solve the situation and take us all out to a movie and trying to show that he was um, all American, he decided to go take us to see Titanic. Um, so we pack up into the car, my brother and I, um, my mom and dad, and my ba and uh, dada, and we go and sit very close to the front because we um, were on Indian Standard Time, so I was a little bit late. And we show up, and we're sitting about um, two rows from the very front screen of Titanic. And I remember the movie starts out really well, um, but you know I remember that there was a particular carriage scene at which Kate Winslet and Leonardo DiCaprio were very much um, right in the middle of the screen because that's where we were sitting. Um, and I will never I will never forget my dad's uh, horrified scream as you see Kate Winslet's breasts on screen, and he goes "Adibop!" and like screams, and. The next thing I remember, I, I had like a blunt force to my neck, as my bro and my brother had the same recollection as we're forced underneath the seats. Um, all I remember is peering through my um, through my fingers at Kate Winslet on the screen, um, and just being horrified. And so we end up back in the um, outside, outside of the theater. And my dad is just determined to make this a wonderful, um, you know, night. He determines that, you know, we, we get back home. And my dad says, you know, I'm so sorry. We need to be the perfect traditional family. Um, and, you know, I'm, and he's apologizing to his mom and dad. And he decides that we need to go to the temple, to the mandir. And so he shoves us back in the car. But my ba's a little bit slower, a little bit older. 
And my dad, um, you know, um, decides to get her into the room and he, uh, into the car, and he slams the car door shut. And then he realizes that my grandmother had had her hand in the car. And she loses her fourth finger, and we end up in the hospital. Um, but by the end of the day, both my mother and my ba, my grandmother, are hugging each other, and it leads to a new relationship in America. Thank you very much. My God, horror stories? Really, first day horror stories? Smitha Sones, come on up. Uh, you got a, she's got a story about her first day in Frankfurt, Kentucky. Hello, everyone. My name is Smitha Sones, and I've almost been in the United States for 24 years coming this February. Uh, coming to Frankfurt, Kentucky was, like uh, Augusta said, a series of three days and a lot of different events and incidents for me. Uh, left Mumbai Airport on the 12th of February. Coming, I was very excited, newly married, young woman, you know, married to my sweetheart of 10 years, you know, amidst all the confusion in Bombay. We had the first riots ever in Bombay, and I got married. It was the Hindu versus Muslim riots, and I got married to a Christian among that, you know, from a very staunch Hindu family. So among all that confusion, I'm here excited. Oh, I'm going to America, and uh, I'm going to land there on uh, 14th February, which is the Valentine's Day, Perfect way to start your newly married life. I'm super excited, and I am just, I can't wait to get to the airport, right? I have my mom and my dad, my brother, my cousins, you know, her husband, her little kids, my small nieces crying because I'm leaving, because I've been like their second mom. And I just like, okay, bye, I'm ready to go. <laughs> and so I, we get on the flight. I'm excited. Oh, next stop, London, New York. And then it's going to be Lexington, Kentucky. So long flight, but, you know, super excited. We get on the flight. They tell us halfway, like, into six hours of flight, really bad weather over Europe. Instead of going to London, we are going to Frankfurt, Kentucky, uh, Frankfurt, Germany. I'm like, oh, okay, so I at least get to see the Frankfurt airport. No, we sat for five hours on the tarmac. Yeah, sitting there with my, holding my stomach, I had my period. Oh, <laughs> I'm just so irritated. Sitting there for five hours, they wouldn't allow us to even go to the restrooms, uh, bathrooms at that time. I did not know the word restroom. <laughs> so sit there. Finally, we arrive at London. We have missed the flight by about six hours, uh, which takes us to New York. And this, they put us on the next flight. Come to New York. We have missed our flight by more than eight hours. So overnight, we go into, I'm, I'm in my, literally my salwar kameez, cotton salwar kameez with black pumps, no socks, and just a bomber jacket. And I'm shivering. It's cold. It's snowing. Transferring, just waiting for the bus to take us. I'm shivering. And get to the, uh, you know, for four hours, we are in the hotel. Come out next day, go to Frankfurt, Kentucky via North Carolina. Come and it's, you know, I get out at Lexington looking at this beautiful rolling hills and I'm super excited. And um, by then, it's February 15th. Now, February 15th has a special meaning in my life. It's my husband's birthday. So I'm like, oh, at least I didn't arrive on February 14th. I'm arriving on February 15th. And that February 15th had another special meaning for me because it was Bill Clinton's first President Day. 
And for me, I had been following Bill Clinton's election for the one and a half years. So I was super excited. And my husband kept saying, hey, what do you care? I mean, you're an Indian citizen. You don't know anything about it. I said, I have been following it. He needs to be the president. George H.W. Bush cannot win. You know, that was our conversation constantly. And so I was super excited. I finally get in to Frankfurt. A friend comes to pick us up. Very excited to meet him. I enter this home of mine. No furniture. Absolutely nothing. You know, walk in, go to the bedroom. It's like every place, single place, it's littered with one socks, one shirt, one trouser. And I'm like, did you not pack before leaving? And he's like, I packed. I said, and what is this? He's like, well, I was in a rush. So I, you know, I came from work. I packed in an hour and left for India. And I said, you were coming to get married? I mean, that's how you packed? He's like, yeah. And then I go into the kitchen. And I, there are two bowls sitting. There are two bowls, three plates, one fork, two knives, and three spoons. That's all. That's how we started. And I, I still have those bowls. They're broken, but I still have them. They're my, you know, those, those are my treasures. So here I am. On February 15th, finally arrive into Frankfurt, Kentucky on a snowy day with an apartment which faces north-south, no sun ever coming in there, <laughs> you know, never seen snow, so super excited, cannot drive, and, but so excited and bright-eyed to be a newly married to my sweetheart and, you know, where President Bill Clinton was going to be the president. <laughs> Thank you. You know, these airplane uh, connection disasters that reminded me of, like I said, I was coming in halt in Cincinnati and then over to Chicago. And of course, immigration and customs happens at your port of entry. And so that was Cincinnati. And of course, that took longer than the break that I had. And so I missed my Chicago flight. But there was this gentleman named Subarao, Nafisa, you might recall him. Um, Subarao was the president of the Indian Students Association at Illinois Tech in Chicago, where I was headed. He was going to come pick me up from O'Hare in Chicago and bring me back to the campus. Except now I wasn't going to be on the flight that he was coming in to pick me up from because I was now on a delayed three-hour later flight. So I called him from Cincinnati. It, the, the story of how you find coins when you don't have foreign exchange and, and this is pre-cell phones. Um, that aside, I eventually figured out a way to call him. But of course, he didn't answer the phone because he was on his way to the airport. So I left him a voicemail on his answering machine dating myself again, um, and, and just said, hey, I'm not going to be on the plane that you think I'm going to be on. I'm going to be on this other flight. So while I was killing time in Cincinnati, he drove to O'Hare, looked for me, couldn't find me. He didn't know me. He had never met me. Um, had the airport people page, out, page me out, I didn't answer. He drove all the way back to south side of Chicago, got my voicemail, came back, and Subarao picked me up from the airport, and I was like, my God, this guy has, you know, I mean, talk about accountability. Like, I would have been completely stranded and lost at O'Hare. Um, and so I decided if I ever get rich and open a pizza and pasta chain in the malls across U.S., I will name it after Subarao. <laughs> but someone else did it. Um, anyway, here's Rashid Noman. He's got a story of coming from Bangladesh to the U.S., Uh, 
All right. Good afternoon or good evening. I always get confused, you know, being in the U.S. for 18 years. But as uh, you said, I've been living in this country 18 plus years. Um, I'll tell you a story. So where do we start? So in Bangladesh, I, I guess it's very common to uh, India as well. In elementary school, in English literature class, we had to write S's. Anybody remember those days? So it was uh, third grade or fourth grade, and the only essay I could write is the cow. And go to the exam, and uh, you know, the teacher said, write an essay on journey by boat. So what do I do? I said, okay, it's all about creative learning. So let me be creative and creative writing. So I started that we took a boat to visit my grandpa's house, and there was a cow by the river. <laughs> and, you know, so I'll try to do that today, uh, though it's about uh, first day, but I'll take you a little bit back. So 97, uh, graduated from college, planning to come to U.S. for uh, graduate studies. So it's 98 by then. So it was, uh, you know, for some reason I got the I-20 just 10 days before the school is going to start. So I got my visa, and then when I was trying to arrange my travel, it's a four stops, 66 hours from Dhaka, Bangladesh to uh, University of South Carolina, Columbia. And Seahawks is playing Panthers today. Anyway, so, but a lot of new things, a lot of first things happen in that journey. Um, so I grew up in a middle-class family, in a middle-class neighborhood. My parents were very structured, very protective. And always, don't talk to the strangers, don't eat from the stand, uh, you know, strangers. And, first, and through my college, I lived at home, you know, believe me. Uh, so first time living home, living the nest, uh, and uh, coming to U.S. 14 hours in Dubai. Um, so anyway... Um, so totally uh, new experience with the people. The language they speak, I don't. Uh, but it went quite uneventful. There are people came, you know, my dad, new few people, they came to see me. And I still remember they brought me two bottles of mango juice. And I was thinking, okay, I'll be, you know, what I'm going to do with those. And I had to leave those with the pe people in the hotel. Uh, but then I came to London, and I had 11 hours in London. But it was a great experience. Uh, so I was sitting in the airport. I picked up a seat where I can see people coming from third floor to the uh, second floor, so looking at the stairs. People with different colors and uh, different ethnicity, and I'm looking at the people and getting, wow. I, I mean, as I said, I never left Dhaka. So first time being in London, looking at all sorts of people, that was a quite experience. And I'm sitting there and watching these people and thinking. Um, and all of a sudden, this gentleman walks to me say, and says, hello. I said, hello. And, uh, you know, in my head, don't talk to the strangers. You know? <laughs> so uh, he sat next to me, and he said, I saw you in the plane. So that gave me, you know, a little bit of relief. Oh, okay, he's from Bangladesh too. So he was in that plane. So we started talking and um, talked about, you know, different, different things. And by talking to him... I figured out that when I will be in New Jersey for 15 hours, I will not get a hotel like Dubai because it's a domestic flight. And he said, you cannot stay in the airport for 15 hours. So what do I do now? So first time I had to figure out how to make a phone call from London to my cousin in uh, New York 
to request them to pick me up from the airport. But this gentleman, uh, after the, some conversation, he said, okay, let's go have lunch. So we headed to the McDonald's, first time ever, McDonald's. And the most surprising part is after the lunch, he paid and he said, you know, $10, you will need that. You are coming as a student. So that was another violation, don't eat from the strangers. <laughs> but it was a good experience, and I was overwhelmed to meeting this uh, gentleman, and still today I have been uh, looking for him um, because I have to say thank you. Uh, because he taught me something precious, which um, I don't know how much I can, but I try to follow that, uh, you know, helping. That what the sentence he said, that, that $10 as a student will be very important for you. Um, so anyway, so coming to New Jersey, and my cousin uh, came to pick me up, and we swing by the Manhattan, right? The Manhattan I saw in the uh, movies and everything, so I felt like the Bollywood and dancing, right? But then we go to his place in um, Queens, and of course it was no more flushy and, you know, all the apartment, I was uh, overall uh, in the shop. So next day I uh, come to South Carolina, and as uh, uh, Koshik mentioned, same thing, one of the senior students picked me up from the uh, airport, took me to his home, and he said, you know, today I go to uh, a different city because I graduated and have a new job, and, uh, you know, there are two other roommates, they will come, but you cook, and <laughs> you eat. And first time in the U.S., and he's saying, I have to cook and eat. <laughs> so, first time, you know, you learn. But next day... Um, we, I went to school and went to 27 professors asking for funding, a new graduate student, uh, going from one to one, and went to three different dorms looking for a job so that I can, you know, my dad gave me $10,000 coming to U.S., but I wanted to save that. So all of a sudden, that one day, I all of a sudden grew up from a very productive environment to a new country, new experience, all on a sudden, I graduated, uh, you know, become an adult, I guess. All right, thank you. So for better or for worse, I do have signal, and it's halftime, and the Hawks are up 23-7. But I also want to take a moment to uh, talk about the three organizations that put this event together. KUOW, or as I like to call them, KUOW, um, <laughs> is probably the most familiar to all of you. It's funny, the, the people who work for KUOW have apparently never heard that. Lisa's lucid it over there. Um, but I want to also mention uh, a word about Tasveer and, and Pratidwani. And Rita, who is the most well-known face of Tasveer, is, is not here today, but she sent me an email um, and I will read it verbatim just so that you guys have what she, what she wanted us to share. Tasveer is a nonprofit art organization whose mission is to inspire social change through thought-provoking South Asian films and stories. We're telling a lot of stories today. Um, Tasveer's upcoming events, this is important, people, uh, South Asian International Documentary Festival, February 18th and 19th, and South Asian Women's Festival, March 17th through 19th. Pratidhwani also has a couple of events coming up. Uh, January 27th through February 4th, the day before Super Bowl, uh, we have a, a Hindi play called Atwa Sarg, 
we haven't done a Hindi play in a good four or five years now, so going back and, and finding one of those. Uh, and then in April, uh, our dance wing will have a remount of Chitrangada at ACT Theater. So uh, a lot more marketing information will come, I am sure, in the weeks and months to come, but keep an eye out for those things. All right, moving on to the next story. This is Rekha Kuber. I hope I'm saying that right. Um, a story about moving to Fiji and then moving back. Hi, everyone. I'm Rekha. Uh, so my parents and my three older siblings immigrated to Michigan before I was born in the 70s. And um, if one of them were here, they would tell the great story about landing in Flint, Michigan in the middle of winter with no winter coats and um, on, the way on the way to the, from the airport stopping at Kmart. That was their first place that they went to get winter coats. Um, but a few years after that, I came along and I had a really great childhood uh, growing up in Flint. Um, and then my early 20s hit me and uh, I kind of went to an early 20s uh, angry place <laughs> and for many reasons, which we don't have time to get into right now. Um, but what I decided was that I needed to move back to Fiji. That's what I thought I, would, I needed. Um, because, you know, all of my problems, it was America's fault. That's what I thought. It's America's fault. And I had always kind of felt a little left out in my family because they had all had this immigration experience together that I did not share. So I went back to Fiji, and I had a great time. Um, I stayed with my aunts and uncles. I was cared for. I was loved. Um, and after some time passed, I realized that I was still mad. And I was mad now because I felt like I had quit America. And my parents and my siblings had worked so hard to make America mine. And I had just quit and left. So I decided to come back. And um, I didn't know if that was the right thing to do, but I did it. My mom and my brother were with me in Fiji at the time, and so the three of us flew back together. 36 hours. I feel like everyone's saying hours tonight, so 36 hours. Um, and the day that we got back to Flint, we went to my mom's house, and um, they were unloading the taxi cab, and I went up to the front door and unlocked the door. And in my parents' entryway, they have um, some potted plants, table. They hadn't been in, in the house for several months also. Um, and they have this kind of five-foot-tall stone Venus de Milo statue. <laughs> and I opened the door, and the statue was, was laying down on the floor as if a very large someone had pushed it over. And I freaked out, and I went back outside, and I told my brother and my mom, I think there's someone in the house, or someone had been in the house. So we called the police, and a police officer arrived. The other part of this that I forgot to say is that it was New Year's Day. And so the police officer arrived and was sort of grumpy, because I'm sure, I don't know why, but he was grumpy because it was New Year's Day. So we walked through the house to make sure that nobody was still in the house. 
Thankfully, there wasn't anybody in the house, but this is what we found. The TV was still there, the jewelry was still there, um, anything valuable, the computer was still there, nothing had been touched. However, aside from the statue being laid out, next to the fireplace there was a stack of newspapers, and it looked like someone had taken the newspapers and separated all the pages and just had a party, flung them all around, all over the living room. All of the pictures on the mantle had been touched. They were kind of moved around. In the kitchen, all of the cabinet doors had, were standing open. All of the drawers were open. There were, was a big bag of flour in one of the cabinets. It had been ripped open, and the entire kitchen was dusted with flour. The hood um, over the stove, the, the fan was, the button was pushed, so the fan was going. So it was like a ghost had been in the house. And we realized, you know, there was nobody there, so the police officer left. And I went into the downstairs bathroom, and what I saw on the toilet seat were little raccoon footprints. <laughs> And so I came outside back to my, my mom and my brother, and I said, you guys, I think there's a raccoon in here somewhere. I'm terrified. We're terrified, right? So we kind of look around. We couldn't, can't find anything, can't find anything. Um, the other thing that we noticed was on the floor, there were all the heating vents. All of the heating vent covers had been carefully lifted up and set to the side. Creepy, right? <laughs> so we tried to call animal control to have somebody come out and sort of see if there was a raccoon in the house somewhere. Again, New Year's Day, it was really hard to find someone to come out, so they were like, we'll come out tomorrow. So we have 24 hours, the three of us, in the house, and we went into my bedroom, all three of us, and we barricaded ourselves into the room <laughs> and spent the night in that house. And... You know, I think about that introduction back into the United States. That was my first day back. And I was feeling so unsure about whether that was the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do. And when I think about it now, I think about the fact that I was trying to make my identity fit either here or fit there. And I think about those open vent covers. And I think about the conduit between one place and another place. And so the raccoon really helped me understand <laughs> that you don't have to be in one place or the other. Thank you. You did not know the symbolism of raccoon. <laughs> it's almost like the mouse under a Ganesh, right? Um, anybody uh, who had one of these blank slips and has now put their name on it and wants to put it in the hat, raise your hand. We'll, we'll come get it. Um, we're looking for you. And if you're just being shy, get over it. <laughs> All right. Uh, Jay Jessima, he's got three vignettes. Um, 
from, I'm assuming they're all from the first day. Come on up here, and I'm going to just read this out. First encounter with a microwave. First escalator ride. Both of these I, I can kind of relate. First pain of sneakers. I don't know this. Thanks very much. Um, so this time it's three inanimate objects. I think my life happens in threes, and these three made my first day memorable. So, of course, being a man of a certain age, uh, it took quite a bit to actually remember what happened that first day. It's almost 30 years ago now. But, you know, once you really stop to reflect, it came right back, and you'll know why in a second. So my first, very first memory of that first day is landing in Chicago. Um, and I was going to spend a week with my aunt, uh, you know, getting acclimated. Of course, I get out, the plane door opens. It's 100 degrees in Chicago. I look up at the sky, and it's blue. I'm not sure why, but that surprised me. It's like, you know, it's got to be different. This is America. Something's <laughs> the sky is blue, and it's 100 degrees. It was 100 degrees in Delhi when I'd left. And then we get in my aunt's car, and it turns out the highway was flooded. The Dan Ryan Expressway was flooded. Now I felt really at home. This was everything I remembered, all the inconveniences right here. So we drive up uh, to my aunt's house, and lo and behold, of course, she had to go into work for a little while. She'd taken some time off. And she said, you know, you, you're going to get hungry after I leave, so you should, you know, eat some rice, and I've made some good South Indian food for you, so you're going to enjoy this. Here's the rice, and have you ever used a microwave? And of course, I'd never seen one or used one. Uh, India in the 80s, you were lucky if you had uh, a working stove or fuel for the stove. So she leaves, you know, she points at the food, she points at the microwave, she presses a few buttons, she leaves. Um, and a couple hours later, I'm alone in the house, I get hungry. So I take the aluminum rice cooker out of the refrigerator into the microwave <laughs> pressed a few buttons and if you've never seen this someone on YouTube has helpfully recorded <laughs> what it looks like so you can go to YouTube and Google metal inside microwave and you will see what I'm talking about of course, my aunt, you know, old-fashioned, believed in unconditional love. So she forgave everything when I told her about the story. Then she took a look at my shoes. And she's like, you know those shiny butter shoes? They're all right for India, but you need something that's more age-appropriate. So let's get you some sneakers. So she takes me, takes me to the mall. And of course, I have never seen anything like this. You know, this is not the India of today. I walk in, you know, stores like Service Merchandise, Montgomery Ward. I had never been to any place where there wasn't a salesperson saying, Paisap, what do you need? <laughs> I could get straight to the goods. But then I looked around, and my aunt had stepped onto an escalator, and she was on the floor below me. She's like, come on, get on. I stood there. Uh, I looked at her for a minute or two, didn't know what to do. I was paralyzed with indecision. She finally had to take the up escalator. <laughs> Lead me by the hand. I have a couple of people who work, uh, who've worked with me before here and one who does work with me. 
And they've been with me on an escalator, and they know I still have those demons uh, somewhere in the back of my head. So, so anyway, we get to, um, you know, and try my shoes on, and by this time, I'm experiencing sensory overload. I'm a little overwhelmed. Like, is this really the land of my dreams? You know, is this what I came here for? I'm really filled with sadness and longing for, you know, what I left behind. So I don't really remember, but I do, I do remember that those shoes were K-Swiss. They're really popular in the 80s. And um, I, you know, I tried those on, I put them on, I took them home. And by this time, I was really morose. And my aunt said, come on, your parents need to see what your first day was like. Let's take a picture of you. So if you saw this picture, you would see me, not the excited person that got on the flight, but someone really depressed, about to cry, my polyester shirt and pants that I'd put on, and this really blindingly white <laughs> pair of sneakers. <laughs> We're talking about portents of the future, you know. Those shoes turned out to be the shoes that got me on my feet in this country, showed me the way. It, feel, it feels very symbolic. You know, we were talking about raccoons and dryer vents. Sometimes inanimate objects really are reflective. I look back at that picture and say, wow, that was me. It was my first day. Look where I've come. Thank you. All right, I have a feeling that, that some of these stories are just going to tug on the same emotional cords for us. But here's Shomit Banerjee. Uh, I'm going to read his description while he's coming up here. Virgin Atlantic flight touches down at Newark Liberty. A scared boy of 25 steps into America. actually way less scary walking up the steps to this mic than I thought it would be. <laughs> Good evening, everyone. My name is Shomit Banerjee, and uh, in case you didn't uh, recognize the surname, if you're from India, probably you did. I'm from a place in India called uh, Bengal, West Bengal, um, where the mothers are, uh, they, uh, they love you through the food they prepare for you. They, they love you through the discipline that they take you, sort of ingrained in you through life. For instance, uh, be nice to strangers when uh, you know always uh, smile at them uh, don't waste food um, you know and and, and of course uh, if you like a girl please let us know uh, let that not be a <laughs> let that not be a surprise and and then i went into engineering college um, you can stereotype i mean this is a stereotype story engineering college uh, graduate got a job with uh, an it firm who were contracting for a major investment bank in New York City. And guess what? They needed an experienced, a three-year experienced uh, a professional in the city within the next uh, 15 days. So I got myself a visa. No, actually, some other people got me a visa and, and put me on a, on a plane, Virgin Atlantic. Uh, my dad was very happy. New York City, son. <laughs> you know, it's going to be very exciting. Uh, you should go to Times Square. Oh, by the way, those Broadway shows... Uh, be careful, there are a few people I've heard in Times Square, you know, be careful of the pickpockets and, you know, some, don't go to those shady lanes, you know, where they have uh, gentlemen shows. 
no. And my mom was very, like, when she found out that I was all set for a U.S. trip, for about four months, she got very, um, I don't, so all of a sudden, she became very quiet. And she was, I couldn't figure out for a while, and I think she later told me that I was pretty scared, son, that you'll come back uh, having liked some, somebody in America, and I can do nothing about it. Um, and then I boarded the flight from Delhi. Uh, middle seat, because back then the, I didn't figure out how to check myself in before the flight. And by the time I reached the airport, even in 2005, surprisingly, everything was full. So I took two middle seats, one from Delhi to London and from da London to uh, New York City, Newark Liberty, to be precise. And I landed there. Um, it was uh, interesting. When I got out of the plane, it was really cold. I think uh, a lot of stories, people come here to this country in winter for some reason, this is statistics. Uh, and, and like the other people, I was also unprepared. I was unprepared for the onslaught. I mean, you enter the, the jetway, it's freezing cold for some reason. You know, in India, they try and fit air conditioners to the jetways. They're very nice. In India, if airline is a was, till some time back, a five-star experience. Here, it's, you know, bus, plane, doesn't matter. You know, it's the same. Like, yeah. I've actually heard captains say, Ladies and gentlemen, settle down. As soon as you settle down, I'll get into the taxiway and start, you know, take you to your destination. So please settle down, keep your bags. I'm like, wow. Anyway, so I landed, jetway, and, and I was trying to smile as I saw new people. Hello, everyone. Nice to meet you. <laughs> and I, I, you know, I later found out that there, people are really nice in America. But the thing is, back, I didn't realize that there were actually, some of them were officials, airline officials who were really tired. It was past midnight. And some of them were actually Homeland Security officers. And their job is to look grim. May I help you? So I ended up and, uh, you know, I started remembering the things my mom told me, my dad told me not to do, to do. I went to the water fountain trying to, and this is cliche, right? I mean, everybody, uh, back in India, the water fountains, uh, the water flows down. And usually there's a cup uh, on the side or like a, like a stack of cups. And I was looking, for, and I found neither. Here the water was going up and then down. <laughs> and I later found out it's very scientific, by the way. It's very nice because that keeps the germs away. But uh, I couldn't figure out how to drink water, so I actually left without drinking water. Um, boarded the taxi. Um, I, back then there was no, well, the Google Maps existed, but not in the phone format. And I didn't have a smartphone back then. Uh, so I just told the address to my driver, who was very friendly, and took me to this house. Uh, at about 3 o'clock in the night, I knocked on the door. It was Saturday evening. And two very bright and uh, energetic-looking Indian faces opened the door. Hey, Shomir, you're here. Oh, come on in, man. And they showed me to my room, which was going to be my room for the next four months. Depressing, no windows. Uh, the guy who left before me went back to India, and I was replacing him. Uh, carefully kept a few things back which he didn't want to take back with him. And some of them could have been his undergarments. <laughs> it was my job to pick up after him and throw it and make the room clean for myself. And then um, I and my friends, very, very helpful, they said, you want to cook something? Go ahead, that's the kitchen. Let me show you everything, the utensils. And I'm like, cook? Oh, yeah, that's right. I'm not in India. Okay. Um, unpacked, and then I went out, and I saw I was actually in Jersey City. There was a Indo-Pakistani restaurant by the name of Shadman. I don't know if you have seen and been in that area. Um, Indian food, 
uh, at least Asian food, uh, biryani, um, chicken. Chicken was like, wow, chicken. These, these guys serve chicken. Thank God. Like, I wanted chicken. And, you know, right next door was Burger King. There was an Indian store not too far away. Everything was walking distance, and there was a max fantastic train system. Within a, within a week's time, I was almost as if, you know, I've always been in America. You know, I had a black London Fog coat. <laughs> and, you know, those black caps. I was in New York City. I was behaving as if, oh, I don't know, fresh off the boat people. <laughs> you know. So... America made me one of its own very soon, and I'm really thankful for that. Thank you. So I have to pick up on some of the terms that are coming up. <clears throat> FOBs, most of you are familiar with. When I came here, I didn't know what the heck that was. I knew what ABCD was. Uh, it was, you know... American-born confused Desis, all these Indian-American Indian kids born brought up here in the U.S. Apparently, they called me a fob. I had no idea what that was. Um, but there was also a term, DCBA, which might apply to you, Shomik, and that's Desi Chala Bande Amriki, uh, <laughs> an Indian trying to become an American. Anyway, so um, next up is Sudeshna Dixit, and her story is of ABCDs and FOBs. Hi everyone, my name is Sudeshna, and I was actually going to write about ABCDs and FOBs, and thank you for uh, giving some more acronyms uh, uh, to my son, because we just had a conversation at a restaurant that I was at, and we were telling him about ABCDs, and he's like, what, you, you'll call me that? And I'm like, yes, I will, but now he has something to fight back with, so <laughs> thank you. But anyways, um, I was going to talk about ABCDs and FOBs, but I didn't quite get the time, so I'm instead going to talk about my first day to the U.S., which is technically also my last day in India. So my journey actually begins in India where, you know, me and my husband got married about three months before we were planning to come to the U.S. And suddenly we decided to come here, so all panic broke in my house. And everybody's like, oh, what should we pack? What should you take? And they're, like, trying to contact relatives who'd been to the U.S., just trying to figure out what should go in the four bags that we're allowed to take to the U.S., so there were a lot of suggestions, and finally I gave up, and I said, you know what, just figure out what you want to do, just pack my bags, this is what I need, as long as I have this, I'm fine. So we ended up with a lot of coat hangers for some reason. <laughs> uh, there were plates and, you know, cups and utensils, a pressure cooker, lots of pickles, and spices which went inside the pressure cooker because you have to optimize the space. And then somebody gave us a suggestion about, you know, you should wear all your warm clothes and jackets so you have more space in the bags. And I'm like, uh-uh, not going to do that. So we did not do that. But at the airport, I did see a few people who were, like, wearing five sweaters and four jackets <laughs> and, like, three socks and, you know, gloves and hats and all that stuff. So anyways, we went to the airport. And my husband and I, we were, like, looking forward to coming to the U.S. and, you know, all my family was there, excited. Nobody cried. We were just very happy to go. They were happy to send us off, hoping that we'll come back soon. And then we go on the flight. And, um, you know, it was late in the night, so we napped. But um, as soon as the food trolley came up, I suddenly woke up. 
And that's when I discovered this phobia that I never knew I had before. And it's the fear of feeling hungry and not finding food at the right time <laughs> on an airplane. So ever since, like, ever since then, up to now, I have to go to the nearest restaurant before I board a flight, and I have to hoard a big bag of bagels, you know, whatever, you name it, fruit cups, coffee, everything, and I take it with me on the flight. I have never, ever sat on a flight without carrying a bag of food. And so this is like a newly discovered thing, and I'm literally eating everything that they're giving, putting in front of me. Everything. I'm eyeing my husband's plate like, are you going to eat that? If not, I'm going to eat that. And my husband just looking at me like, did I make the right choice in my life? <laughs> And, well, he's had a couple of other moments like this after that when I discovered my addiction to ranch dressing when I moved to the U.S. And my addiction, very reluctant to admit it, Jerry Springer. When... <laughs> When I first switched on the to a television and I saw Jerry Springer, I'm like, what is that? And it was with this repulsion and attraction that I would watch all the Jerry Springer episodes. But I'm digressing. So going back to my plane journey, I'm eating everything inside. I'm drinking. I'm, you know, doing whatever. Then finally I fall asleep. And um, we're about 10 minutes from landing into Dallas. And then I get up. And I'm like, oh, wow, 10 minutes. Let me look out the window. Let me see what the U.S. looks like. And then I look out the window, and it looked like rural India. Like, I was so disappointed that this is U.S., like the U.S. that you see all the pictures about. Like, I don't know what I was expecting, but it certainly wasn't that. It was flat for miles around. There were hardly any trees. There was nobody on the roads. And I'm just like, oh, my gosh, okay, I don't know where I, why I even came here. Why did I bother? <laughs> so, anyways, our flight lands. And we take our bags. We're going through customs. And the custom officer asks me, do you have any food? And of course, I've been told by everybody to say, no, I don't have any food. So I said, no, I don't have any food. But they still pull us aside. And they're trying to open our bags. And the bags have been packed so tightly that things are just, like, popping out. <laughs> and I'm just, like, the whole time I'm trying to figure out how am I ever going to fit everything back in the bags again. So he's looking at the pickles, and he's looking at the hangers, and he's giving me strange looks, and I'm just like, you know, <laughs> yes, this is what I'm carrying. And then he finds a bag of mustard seeds that somebody had decided to pack. And he's looking at it and asking me, so what is this? And I said, mustard seeds. And he just hears the word seeds, and he's like, you're not allowed to carry any plants and, you know, seeds. And I'm like, no, no, they're mustard seeds. They're used for cooking, and I'm trying to explain how tempering and oil and this and that. <laughs> and... <laughs> He doesn't want to hear anything about what I'm saying, and he just takes the seeds and throws them wherever. And um, then he's digging deeper into my bag, and he finds a bag full of homeopathic medicine that somebody had kindly enough packed in because they thought I wouldn't find it in the U.S. Now, this bag has neatly packed little pouches of white powder. <laughs> just... <laughs> Just the right amount for sniffing, if you know what I mean. <laughs> so he's opening out the powders, and he's looking at it, and 
I'm like, no, 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 that's not cocaine. And his eyes just go wider. And at this point, I'm like, I don't know how to explain. Like, I'm like, this is homeopathic medicine. He, of course, hasn't heard of the word homeopathic. So he calls another officer, and my husband and I are just standing there, like, not sure how to explain this to this guy that it's medicine. And so they're trying to examine the powder, like holding it against the light. I don't know what they were doing, testing it. And finally, I'm like, I'll eat it and show you that it's fine. (laughs) And he's looking at me like, yeah, you will. And (laughs) so ultimately, he decides that the homeopathic powder is not going inside the bag again. So he basically takes it and he dumps it in the trash. And he helps us pack our bags. He's very nice and... He looks at us with a smirk and a smile and says, Welcome to America. It wasn't the first day. It was the first week that I was in my dorm room in Chicago, and I heard a gunshot right outside. And I said to myself, Welcome to America. So... Um, next up is Chris Shankar. He's got a story of, of um, prejudice and redemption, a little uh, anecdote that I guess he experienced with the guard at the gated community that he was at. So I'm actually going to spring a surprise on you. I decided to switch and talk about my first week in America. So, um, so with all the uh, levity floating around, I didn't want to bring a serious topic in. So um, I'm going to pull out a few interesting anecdotes from my first week here. So um, like many of you, I took a flight, you know, many hours, days, flew through Hong Kong and landed in San Francisco where the um, ubiquitous Indian cousin picked me up. You know, we have cousins everywhere, right? You know, every city, you've got a cousin. So... This guy picks me up. He's not seen me in like two decades. Last time he saw me, he was probably this big. He comments on how big I am now, blah, blah. We go to his house. So he lives in an apartment in Mountain View, right? So, um, and he's working through the day, so he leaves me alone. I've got 10 days to spend at his apartment getting acclimatized, getting accustomed to the time zones, etc. before I move to Kansas, where I was going to go to grad school. And you might wonder why I went to Kansas. That's a whole different story, right? So um, I'm alone at home almost every day, and I'm taking walks around his neighborhood, exploring this wonderful new place. It's, it's winter, by the way. Like many of you, I chose to arrive in winter, which, as it turns out, was a mistake when I went to Kansas. But in, the mount- in Mountain View, it is pretty okay. So um, one day, he calls me up from work, and he says, hey, I'm coming home. I haven't cooked anything. Uh, let's go out for lunch. And I said, no, no, don't do that. I looked in his uh, fridge, I looked at all the ingredients, said, you know what, I'm going to cook lunch for you today. I'm going to make you Kashmiri pulao. Now, some of you might know what Kashmiri pulao is, right? I mean, I used to love it as a kid, so he's super excited. He didn't know that this guy could cook. I mean, which Indian guy can cook before they come to this country, right? So, so anyway, he says, great, I'll be home in an hour or so. I sort of put the phone down and take out the packet of sun-kissed raisins. You've seen the sun-kissed raisins? And I find some rice, so I boil the rice, dump in the raisins, and there's a packet of cashew nuts. I toss that in and put it on the table. Well, let's suffice to say that 
and he comes home expecting this Kashmiri pulao for Raj. He finds this bowl of rice with sun-kissed rice and starts to <laughs> So it didn't go very well at all with him. He had to sort of sit and cook lunch, and he ended up eating whatever he cooked that day. Well, um, so um, he goes off again, and, and the weekend's coming up, so um, I'm sort of, uh, you know, again, you know, trying to figure out, you know, how to spend my time here, then the weekend rolls around, and um, my cousin likes to sort of really relax on the weekends, and it turns out that his way of relaxing um, is to turn up the hot water in the bathtub, get a glass of wine, um, you know, put on some music, and then hang out in his bathtub for an hour. So he goes in, and then I hear this sort of loud exclamation, and I go, what now? So he comes out running, saying there's something really weird in the bathtub, and I go like, what? And so I walk in, Look at the bathtub, and there's this weird ring of sort of, sort of strange-smelling yellow stuff all around the bathtub, and we can't quite figure it out. Then he goes, wait a minute, that smells like rancid butter. And I went, yeah. He says, do you know anything about this? <laughs> so it turns out a couple of days back, uh, I got this really dry scalp, you know, like I'm not used to the dry weather in this country, right? So... Um, I looked around for the oil, but there's no hair oil in the house, right? So, you know, me being this resourceful guy, I opened the fridge, took out this, you know, tube of butter, melted it, <laughs> rubbed it into my head, <laughs> and then when it sat in the bathtub, <laughs> but I think it's instead of washing away, the butter had coated the bathtub, and in two days it had gone rancid, and the whole place was stinking, right? <laughs> So uh, my, my poor cousin Srini couldn't enjoy his glass of wine in the bathtub, and we spent the next two hours scrubbing the bathtub clean. So um, that was my first week in the U.S., at least that's some of the more memorable incidents. And let's see. Yeah, I think um, that's probably good for today. Thank you. <laughs> If you had started with a story about something other than butter on your head, you would have had somewhere to go, but you can't top that. So, um, I don't know if, uh, if Meenakshi volunteered to tell a story or if she was voluntold, because um, there's nothing on this other than her name. So, so this might, might be like a suicide karaoke or something. But here comes Meenakshi Rishi. Good evening. Uh, I think I was voluntold, but you know, you know me, I'm never shy in retiring. So I want to talk about my first day with the financial system in the United States. Um, I um, came to Amherst as a graduate student, and I was told that I would get a paycheck at the end of the month of $139.11. And I was told to choose a bank. There was a bank called Bay Bank in Boston and another one called Shamat. When you write Shamat in Hindi, it comes out as Shamat, <laughs> which some of you are laughing at, which means bad days. So the feng shui on that was not okay for me. <laughs> and that's how I chose to bank with Bay Bank. So, um, you know, um, so, you know, little side note. I had never banked before. All my banking needs were performed by my parents in India. I did not know how to open my own bank account. 
maybe it's how naive I was. I was only 21 when I came to this country. Anyway, here I have a bank account. And uh, the registrar at the college tells me, give me a voided check so we can do an auto deposit. I think voiding had a different connotation in my mind. <laughs> my, friend, my friend Linda Ewing helped me. Um, I hope she's listening. She helped me to figure out what voiding a check meant. I said, like, this is like making it to self, right? Um, she couldn't figure that out. She said, just cross out. That's called a voided check. So anyway, I have avoided check. I've been told there is an account in your name and the money will be deposited there. What do you mean the money will be deposited there? Where is my money? <laughs> so, um, you know, just like the kid in Mary Poppins trying to figure out where his tuppence went, I went to the bank um, to ask, you know, where is my money? And they said, well, you know, it's in your account. And uh, the lady pulls up a little sheet and um, shows me that there is, there is a deposit there uh, under my name with my social security num uh, number next to it. So I'm relieved. Then I come home and I say, but I need that money. How do I get it out? So I contact my friend, Linda Ewing, who thinks I'm going through a crisis and says to me, I'm first going to, you know, treat you to some chai. Let's have some tea. So we go and have some tea and, um, you know, I... Um, after the tea is done, I take out all my pennies and I pay her for the tea. And she stares at me and she says, why are you paying me in pennies? And I said, not everybody who comes from the third world is a debtor. <laughs> <laughs> She's, she remembers that to this day. So I asked Linda, how do I get my money out? And she said, go to an ATM. What is an ATM? <laughs> I've never encountered an ATM. So she, um, also an economist like me, draws a diagram of an ATM and said, did you set up a password when you um, opened this account with Baybank? And I said, well, I think I did put some numbers in there. She's like, so it's very simple. Here's a diagram. And she drew one. I said, oh, it's a three by three matrix. And she said, um, yeah. So you just punch in the numbers. You can get your money out. And I said, okay. Um, uh, armed with this information, I try to um, approach this ATM. The bank is closed, by the way, so I can't go inside and ask the nice lady to give me my money, $139.11. And I go to this ATM, and I try to, to, to put, put punch in numbers, but you're supposed to put your card in there, and Linda Ewing had not told me that you first put your card in there. So I'm struggling with it, and I don't know what to do. And then I remember, I have hope in Zongwen. Zongwen was a Chinese graduate student. And I take a bus to her house, and I ring the doorbell, and she's kind of sleepy. I think it's a Sunday. And she's like, why are you waking me up? And I said, please come with me to the ATM. And she said, it's your money. You just have to go to the ATM, put the card in, punch your numbers, get your money out. The deal's done. And I said, Zongwen, please come with me. So I take Zongwen with me to the ATM, and we're standing in front of the ATM, and she says, put your card in. And I said, where? What is in mean? <laughs> Nobody had drawn me a diagram of what in meant at that time. <laughs> I'm sorry. This is how I was. And so she says, that, that is in. You have to put it in. And I said, okay, what is, what is this card? How do I, what is in? So she put the card in. And then she said, now you can put your password. And I said, no, I can't do it. You do it. And she said, why me? Why me? 
And I look at her straight in the eye and I said, Zongwen, have you never heard of third world solidarity? This is how I was, Meenakshi said. How many people want to change that to this is how I am? <laughs> I kid, I kid. Um, so we started a few minutes late, and I'm going to pull, uh, make an executive decision, say we're going to end a few minutes late just so we can get all the stories in because we have a, a few more um, to go. So let's keep on going. Deep has a story about uh, first day wearing a turban. Um, so a few years ago, it was 2010, my wife and I, we decided to take a year off and travel around the world. And it was January in Seattle, so it was rainy, and we had to plot a trajectory, so we thought, okay, we'll just follow the sun. So that meant we'd start going south. And I'd, um, you know, I'd had this thing in the back of my head for about 10 years that, uh, you know, I was going to be a proper Sikh and start wearing a turban and grow my hair out. And so we're in, uh, in uh, you know, we we're in Buenos Aires, and it had been about seven, eight months before I quit my job and everything and decided, okay, you know, like, been a while since I had a haircut and things. So for those of you who don't know, Sikhs, you know, we never cut our hair, and you actually require the hair to kind of tie a proper turban sometimes. So I'm in... Uh, you know, Buenos Aires, and just like anyone else kind of exposed to the Western media, you're sort of just paranoid. I'm just thinking, oh, my God, this is the first day walking around. I'm just going to get strung up and thrown in prison or something. And so it was kind of this nerve-wracking experience. And then we, you know, we kind of flew over to, um, but, it, you know, of course, nothing happened because there's Che Guevara and people have beards, and I think beards are the scariest part of the turban experience for a lot of cultures. So it was, it was a non-issue. So then we're in, you know, we're in South Africa, and now I'm actually trying to get a turban on, and I don't have a clue because, you know, normally you have this whole sort of long period where you learn this, you know, uh, this, this process. And so then we're, you know, I'm trying to figure out how to actually, cause, you know, because I'm also sort of obsessively individualist, so I'm trying to come up with my own kind of style or something. <laughs> None of which work if you don't have hair, you know, because my hair is just kind of bushy and doesn't make a lot of sense. So, so then I managed to come up with something that's a little bit more than what I had in, in Buenos Aires, but not quite a proper turban yet. And, you know, the South Africans, uh, um, as the Botswanan uh, um, woman can tell you, are, you know, very multicultural and just very loving and warm and friendly, unlike, you know, what maybe we have some stereotypes from the apartheid era, but it's a very lovely culture. So then, you know, so then we get to, you know, we, you know, we go through the Middle East a little bit. Everything's, you know, kind of starting to figure this out. And then we get to Delhi, and, of course, you know, now it's family and people. And, you know, we were uh, moving into to India for a while. And so then I have a, a long-time uh, friend of mine who's this very stoic, um, very kind of conservative with his words, uh, Sikh, you know, um, uh, wonderful, wonderful friend, and he, um, he's also our driver, and he picks me up, and he just kind of stares at me for like three minutes, like doesn't say anything, and then he finally says, kita. <laughs> which, you know, just means like, you're done good, you know, <laughs> and that's that, and so then I'm thinking, oh, okay, so, you know, then, you know, he, he drives us in, we, we go to Punjab, and we kind of set up, and we get the kids in school, and a couple months pass, and then he kind of comes back after, you know, we got settled. And, he, you know, again, he stares at me for about two minutes. And 
he looks at me and he's like, you know, Paji, you've got this really special beard. <laughs> like it's very, uh, you know, like, you know, you know, mine's like long and raspy and, you know, other people have this and that and some have to do this and he goes on and on. And he's like, but everybody wants these tight curls. And of course my wife just falls over laughing. She thought it was the funniest thing ever because, you know, followed by this moment of silence. So then another few months pass and, you know, he comes by again and he sits by, you know, he does the same thing, doesn't say anything, stares at me for like two or three minutes. And, you know, at that time I'm tying the proper seek uh, turban, which is asymmetrical and has the, the layers on it. And, you know, he looks at me for another couple minutes, and he's like, I think I figured it out. And I said, what? And he's like, it's backwards, you know? <laughs> <laughs> like the, you know, the, the lards are going the wrong way, and it's because you're looking in the mirror, and, you, and I'm thinking, there's a direction? Because, <laughs> you know, it was just YouTube videos or whatever. And so... So then, you know, so then, you know, we're, we kind of leave, you know, leave Eve India because, like, you know, it had been six, seven months in India, so I'm very comfortable with this, and now we're going back into the West, you know, which is, of course, you know, very, at least, you know, the, you know, it's not the most accommodating place for people, uh, you know, who wear uh, head covers. Um, so, you know, I think the Muslim women in the audience will, will uh, understand this. So then, I mean, you know, we fly into France, you know, which is perhaps the most hostile of places. And, uh, and so now I'm thinking, okay, well, now what's going to happen? This will be curious. And so, so then we're in Lyon, and, um, and, you know, we're just at this, uh, we're just kind of walking down the street, and this, this um, you know, South Asian guy comes up, and he's like, oh, you have to eat at our restaurant, Sardarji, you have to sit here. So we sit down, you know, and he was Pakistani, and he, you know, and, and Sikhs, of course, were in his village pre-partition, and, and so he just, you know, feeds the whole family, doesn't charge us anything, you know, tells us all these stories, we have this amazing experience. And, you know, that was that. So then, so then, you know, we're still kind of making our way back to Seattle. We're in Spain now. I'd thrown my back out. So, you know, we spent my days just kind of lying in a park, smiling and, like, staring around while doped up on cyclobenzaprine. And this, um, <laughs> this, this uh, Bangladeshi guy uh, comes up. And um, so, you know, he's, you know, he's, of course, he's, he's illegal, and he's got this, you know, giant you know, bag full of beer that he's selling bootlegged in the park. And he's got this big stack of cash, like, in his bag. And he sits down, he's like, Sridharji, you know, can you watch all my stuff? Because I have to, you know, like, the cops, they come by, and then I've got this beer, and, you know, and so if you just watch it, you know, I'm like, yeah, of course. And so he just, you know, kind of leaves his stuff there. And I'm sitting there, you know, just kind of hanging out. And then, you know, like, three hours later, he comes by, and we start talking about, you know, the state of illegal Bangladeshi immigrants in Madrid. And so then, um, so, you know, then, uh, so then, you know, we fly in, we come to the States, and, um, you know, I'm at my daughter's uh, elementary school, and we're sitting there, and, you know, a good friend of, I don't know, probably 15 years, looks at me from, I was like, did you always wear a turban? <laughs> This is one of the stories that I have a version to, but I'm not sharing with you. But Prashant Ganpati has a story about his first speeding ticket in Seattle. Hi, my name is Prashant. Um, initially, when I came here, I was not going to uh, drop my name because I was talking to my friend, and I'm, I could barely remember my first days uh, in America. I came in 2004, not so long ago. I was like, I can't even remember which flight I took. 
I was trying to remember, it took 10 minutes. I'm like, yeah, pretty un uneventful. So I don't really have anything to say. But then I kind of thought about uh, you know, moving to Seattle. And that was actually much more traumatic for me, in a way. Because at least coming to America, you know, you plan it, you know, give your exams, you, you, know, you kind of do it over a period of time. Uh, but moving to Seattle was very impulsive. Uh, about six years ago, in 2011, January of 2011, right in the middle of winter from the Bay Area. Uh, before I move forward, are there any traffic cops in the audience? <laughs> this is about speeding tickets. So, um, so yeah. So I was in the Bay Area for six years. You know, well settled. Um, you know, in the comfort zone. All the friends are there. Job is, you know, I was an engineer. And then Thanksgiving of 2010. It's that status quo, right? And then, in within a month. I decide to change my role, I get into sales, and I decide to move to Seattle all at the same time. So that was way more impulsive and traumatic within a month. In a new city, I barely knew anyone. And so I thought about sharing you know, how I got my first traffic ticket in the first few days of being in Seattle. Uh, it was like the first month, I think. Um, and again, stopping here and going back in the Bay Area. I don't know how many of you have been in the Bay Area. But, uh, in the city limits, the, the speed limit is 65. Um, <laughs> but no one goes at 65. Everybody drives at 75 or above, right? People go fast there. Um, and so, like, driving at 75 in the Bay Area is normal, right? You don't get a, get a ticket because everybody is driving at 75. Uh, and so, but when you come to Seattle, you know, it's 60, and they're pretty strict. Uh, so here I was in Seattle, first few days, you know, new job, new city, I barely knew anyone. It was pretty stressful, like I barely had any time. And I'm driving along, uh, and first thing I notice is like, people are really nice about driving here compared to the Bay Area, like letting you go and you know, cut, letting you cut in. And I'm like, wow, this is really good. And suddenly, you know, one Sunday or something, I think Saturday or Sunday, cop flags me down on the 405. I'm like, what happened? Uh, he's like, you're at 75. Uh, you know, 15 over speed limit. I'm like, oh, okay. So I was not really trying to go fast. It was the speed I used to go for, you know, for six years in the Bay Area. So I was like, okay. Um, then I tell my boss, and in in the, in 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 the Bay Area, when you get a ticket, the first time, you get to write a test or take a class, and it's waived off. So no points. You know, it doesn't go on your insurance. You don't have to pay the penalty the first time, right? Nothing, no such thing in Seattle. I'm like, oh shit, I have to fight it in court. And, and my boss like, you don't have time for that, just hire a traffic lawyer. That's another first, you know, very American thing to do, is to get a lawyer, right? In India, middle class, you never get a lawyer or anything like that. It's, it's not like, it's the last resort thing. Here, first thing you go to the lawyer, right? So, I'm like, okay, traffic lawyer, you know, I get, you know, I look up one of the better ones, you know, she charges. So, that's another rule of, like, traffic law in the US, you have to pay someone, right? If you pay the penalty and you know get points on your insurance, you have to pay the insurance company. Or you pay the traffic lawyer once, and then you don't have to pay the insurance. So you have to pay someone, right? And then it goes away. <laughs> so I, you know, traffic lawyer charges some money, and she's like, you don't have to come to court. I'll take care of it. And she gets back. She's like, yeah, it's gone. It's fine. I'm like, wow, that's great. In the same year, the first year in Seattle, this happens three times. <laughs> 
all the all three times i'm going at 75 right this is my subconscious like when i'm driving there's the road ahead i can i just go at 75 right and all three times i go to the same traffic lawyer you know she fights it off the third time she actually calls me back and she like i have good news and bad news i'm like tell me the bad news she's like this time the cop actually showed up you know he remembered everything so it was really hard to fight it off but i knew the judge and we kind of worked it out you still have to pay the fine but you won't get your points on the i'm like that's fine i'll pay the fine um so you know so three times and then a couple of my friends moved from somewhere else here they also got tickets and i referred them to the same lawyer <laughs> so she got so much business out of being <laughs> that she was like the next one is on me you know i'm scared of you <laughs> thankfully after the first year it never happened and i've never had to reach out to her again but that was kind of my first you know introduction into seattle and uh, how i got my first speeding ticket in in america and hired a traffic lawyer <laughs> All right, we're going to break the mold just a little bit. Normally we we include all the the South Asian or uh immigrant names in this, but you know multiculturalism is a two-way street. Um here's a story uh from Mariana. You still in there? You want to come up? Um of her first day in Seattle with three Indian roommates. Um <laughs> she's she's also married to a dashing-looking Indian guy. I've seen the pictures on Facebook. They're great. Hi. So, as Augustus said, my name is Mariana, and for those listening at home, I am not Indian. <laughs> But I am married to one. And as I was sitting out there listening to all these stories, I kind of realized how my first day in Seattle, days in Seattle sort of led me to where I am actually here tonight, you know, to marrying Augusta and all of those things. So, you might find it interesting. So, I moved to Seattle. Heck, I moved to the West Coast, sight unseen. And I had arranged a room through Craigslist. So that was the only way that I knew how to do it. And I saw that that these three Indian graduate students at the University of Washington had a room free. And I had had one dear friend in college who was of Indian descent, and so I knew that Indian boys are gentlemen. And <laughs> they're well raised. I will feel safe with them. <laughs> so it was arranged. And when I arrived, the door was wrenched open by my friend Rahul, and he looked at me, shook my hand, grabbed my two heavy bags and brought me in. And that was the beginning of a whole new chapter of my life I see now. <laughs> so that was my first this month that I was with them before university started. I was exposed to the sound of a pressure cooker. <laughs> something that I had never experienced before. Uh lime pickle. really tasty <laughs> uh, the uh sleeping in your kurta pajama i didn't know what that was all of these things but most significantly in that month one of the guys there said to me he said you do theater there's a an indian guy in seattle who does theater he does plays you should meet him <laughs> and about 4 years later i did <laughs> and the rest is history <laughs> thank you <laughs> That's right. Everyone listening on radio and here everywhere should know Indian boys are gentlemen. <laughs> That's the moral of the evening. 
Um, multiculturalism is not a two-way street, but it also doesn't always end up in India. Uh, Luis has a story um, about the first time she, as a white woman, met her African-American husband's family. So for those of you listening at home, I'm also not Indian. <laughs> I saw it. How many of you saw Mother in Another Language? Yeah. <laughs> right. I saw that, and what really struck me, having very little experience with any kind of Indian culture, I've never even been to India, was how many things about the cross-cultural experience are the same. So I went... Now, my husband's parents didn't tell him outright don't fall in love with a white woman, but he did. So we go to meet his parents. I had never been the only white person at any place. And especially in the United States, to be a white woman in an African-American family is a situation fraught with a lot of pitfalls. Well, my in-laws were absolutely wonderful. I had a great time that first weekend. I thought, this is promising. My husband's Aunt Jean came, and she gave me a hug, said, I'm a very friendly, huggy person. But, of course, what she was really doing was checking out this strange white woman who had come home with her beloved nephew, whom she helped raise. About a year and a half later, I go for my first Christmas with my in-laws. Now, among African Americans, there's this belief, and I'm sure there are similar beliefs wherever you're from, is that if you have a bunch of people in a room and somebody says it's too hot, it's always the white person. <laughs> <clears throat> but see, the thing is, I promise you, my in-laws really do keep their house too hot. <laughs> they really do. So... I packed for winter in Seattle because that's what winter in Southern Virginia is like. So I've got my long sleeve shirts and my jeans and my sweaters and stuff like this. It's 85 degrees in my in-law's house. And the way it works in my in-law's house, especially at holidays, when people come over, they all sit in the tiny living room and there's nine or ten people. And so the heat rises and finally I just can't stand it. So I go outside where... It's a gorgeous 39 degrees. <laughs> and I feel all this heat kind of, you know, off-gassing from me. And I start to feel comfortable. And the, the pavement of the carport is really nice and cool under my feet. And I'm starting to do fine. Now, if you notice what I slipped in there, right? Something my mother-in-law notices, she says to Kyle. I didn't hear this till later. Kyle, she says. Yes, ma'am. He's a good African-American young man. He calls his mother, yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Louise just went outdoors. Yeah, she gets too hot. She doesn't got any shoes on. Yeah, she kind of does that. Well, why does she do that? She's white. <laughs> Thank you very much. telling you we're all weird in our own ways. 
So I'll tell my last story, and then we're going to wrap this evening up because we are over time here. Um, by the way, about 11 minutes to go in fourth quarter, the Hawks are up 37 to 7. So it's working out. So um, after the overeating incident on the plane, finally when I got to the dorms in Chicago, it was orientation week. There were a lot of parents and families visiting, and so the dorms cafeteria had been opened up. By the way, for those of you who were complaining about cooking after coming to the U.S., the fastest way to cook a meal is to slide a meal pass in the dorms, let me just tell you that. Um, anyway, so, so all the food had been taken out of where it normally sits and put out on a buffet table, and all the parents and students and guests, et cetera, were free to make their own meals. So um, this was true for the deli as well. And so all the breads were out, and all the meats were out, and all the cheeses were out, and there were you know, things that you would put on your sandwich. So I walk up there. I don't recognize any of this food. Um, you know, I was born, brought up in, in India as a Hindu, not a very staunch practicing, but, you know, you don't eat beef. You, we were a non-vegetarian family, so we ate chicken four times a year. Um, but that's really the extent of non-vegetarianism in India. <laughs> but but here, here it was, so I picked some kind of bread and some kind of meat and some kind of cheese, and, and they had cucumbers. I like kheeta, so I took a slice of cucumber. It was a pickle. It wasn't a cucumber. I didn't know that. Um, <laughs> Anyway, so I made this sandwich, and I ate it, and I took a bite of that cucumber, and it was the absolutely most rotten, overripe, just galawa, the, the worst cucumber I had ever eaten. I have an emotional scar. I don't eat pickle. Um, <laughs> but next day, when everything went back behind the counter, and, and it was all now properly labeled, I realized I just had a corned beef on rye sandwich. And this was the first day in the U.S., and so now all uh, constraints were off, and I could do whatever the heck I wanted. <laughs> So anyway, with that, um, thank you all for being here. This has been a wonderful edition. We were a little worried if people would come or not for, for, with the Seahawks game and all. Um, but you're all here, and, and it's been a wonderful story. Look forward to the fourth, whenever that happens. And, and if you have any suggestions for themes, uh, email um, either folks at the Sphere or Pratithwani or, or KUOW, and let's, get, let's see if we can get some good suggestions for what the fourth edition of Storywellers ought to be. Go Hawks. Drive safely. Thank you very much. Thanks for streaming this episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle. Storywala's first day took place on December 4th at the Seattle Asian Art Museum. Thanks again to Sonia Harris for our recording. Tune in again soon. <laughs>